Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. So it's lovely to be here. We, as Andrew mentions last week, we were all away with the plague and uh, I must admit that this was prepared in a slight fog from said plague. So um, if it doesn't make sense, that's on me, but I'm sure God can still work through that. Um, so today we're actually beginning just a, a two-week mini-series, um, so just this week and next week, called Risen Jesus. And we're looking at uh, two particular encounters from Scripture that, uh, where people encounter the risen Jesus. We want to look at these, how, uh, what these encounters add to the gospel story and particularly what they mean for us. When I preach, I have been sincerely warned by my wife not to use sporting analogies, and I'm going to do it today, kind of breaking the rules, but I'm going to use a football analogy. I'm using it because I think it works, and there's not too much fine detail about football, so please forgive me if you're not a football person, but I want you to think of three different scenarios. So firstly, imagine the excitement and anticipation you feel in the week leading up to the grand final. Your team is playing, and they're expected to win. You attend the pre-match parade and afterwards you arrive early at the stadium and eagerly take your seat ready for the first bounce. However, what was supposed to be a fantastic day quickly evaporates as your team seems to meekly surrender at each point. Your team loses and loses horribly. You rush out of the ground as soon as the final siren sounds, not staying behind for any of the festivities. What went wrong? What happened to the certain victory? Or maybe your team does win. You stay long after the game uh, and revel in the festivities. However, Monday comes around fast. Pressures of work and home pile up and before the week is out, you scarcely remember the game. It just doesn't seem to have changed your life the way you thought. Or maybe, like many of us here, particularly the Essendon supporters like me, the Crows supporters, you've enjoyed that winning feeling but it was a long time ago. The memory of the joy is very faint. And it's hard to even place that event. It really doesn't have any tangible effect on you at all now. With that in mind, today we're reading from Luke's, uh, we're reading from Luke's Gospel, a story about what happened after the events of the first Easter. This passage is often dubbed the road to Emmaus, and it's one of my favourite all-time passages. So it should be up on the screen um, for those of you who want to play along that way, or there are hard copy Bibles there for those who want to hold on. It's Luke chapter 24, starting from verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. As they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, uh, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was still alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised them when he broke the bread. Similar to our footy fan in the first scenario of our opening analogy, but of much greater importance, these disciples, along with all the other followers of Jesus, had been growing in hope that he was the true Messiah. This feeling grew during his ministry as he performed miracles and spoke in ways they had never heard anyone talk before. This excitement grew, culminating in his glorious and triumphant entry into Jerusalem only days before. The Jewish understanding of the Messiah was that he would return and restore Israel to glory. Perhaps restore is not even the right word, as this would be Israel as it never had been, unrivaled and unequaled, threatened by no one and dominant over all. Unsurprisingly, there was a strongly held belief that all this would need to be achieved militarily, not through non-violence and certainly not through punishment and death. To say these people on the road are disappointed would be an understatement. This stranger and his uninformed questions only rub salt into the wound. Before we dig into the serious part, though, I feel it's important to pause and give a nod to Jesus' outstanding sense of humour. The feigning ignorance of what has been happening in Jerusalem, his pretending to continue on with his walk before accepting an invite to dinner, it adds so much to the story, and I certainly find it comforting to know that Jesus enjoys a good laugh. So, I want to look at this passage from a certain angle today. The angle is certainly not... Uh, the only one or even a typical one but something that I felt compelled to focus on today as we look at how this encounter with the resurrected Jesus speaks to us. So only seven days ago we joined here together and I I used the royal we because I wasn't here and celebrated the empty tomb. However even hours or days after that we much like the football fans in scenario two can begin to question Uh, what relevance Jesus' resurrection has for us as we deal with work, family, sickness, elections and all the other thrills and spills of daily life. Or at a broader level we see wars, pandemics, grand injustices and inequalities and wonder where the Messiah is in all of this. The victory glow of a week ago already seems to have faded and lost relevance. Much like the disciples in this story, we are each of us walking down a road, albeit metaphorical, And perhaps more often than we care to admit, we feel alone, disappointed, lost and bereft. The things we hoped for or put our hope in don't seem to be coming to fruition. 
I want to look at this story through the lens of three different phases of life or discipleship as a way of thinking about our own walk down life's road. These phases were described centuries ago by people like St John of the Cross and Catholic theologian Ronald Rollheiser has modernised these in his excellent book Sacred Fire. The first uh, life phase, which Rollheiser dubs essential discipleship, involves a struggle to establish ourselves. This is the phase of life where we struggle to find out who we are, where we belong, who loves us, what our vocation is, etc. From the dawning of adolescence onwards, as we move out of our parents' shadows and start to encounter the world for ourselves, we battle for belonging and purpose. As we walk down this section of the road, there can be lots of false dawns. Mark Sayers, in his brilliant cultural analysis, The Road Trip, writes about how our culture changed in the 1950s and 60s to become hyper-individualised and to marginalise God from our view. In doing so, our culture became reliant on feelings and experiences to help define meaning. Additionally to this, as Simon Sinek, a popular, business, a popular speaker and business consultant, points out, young people have been raised in an era of instant gratification. Through the advent of smartphones and a multitude of other gadgets, they have come to expect immediate results. This is then combined with a steady stream of affirmation by parents and teachers, not necessarily a bad thing, building an expectation that they can do and be anything they choose. As these young people finish school and occupational training and enter the workforce and the waiting world, they can be shocked by the reality that actually they can't be anything they want. They will not cure cancer or play lead violin in the ASO six months after leaving school. This, of course, creates disappointment, disillusionment and even depression. These same feelings can obviously be attached to the, their encounter with Jesus. With this background and expectations in place, Jesus can be assumed to be a cure-all, a magic bullet that will erase anxiety, bring success and eliminate hardship. Encounters with Jesus may be more likely to occur in hyper-aroused environments like youth camps and worship performances, again, not bad things, that appeal to the young person's desire for transcendence but can afterwards leave them feeling hollow. This Jesus that I had hoped so much in does not seem to be delivering. They trudge down the road, faces downcast. The next phase of life, which Rollheiser dubs mature discipleship, is defined by the struggle to give ourselves to others. This stage tends to start during the 30s, but may occur a little later or a little earlier. By now we are most often settled, potentially with a marriage and children, with a stable occupation and a whole host of considerable responsibilities that come with these. Although this stage is not immune to the passions of youth, generally these have cooled, and where in the past control of passions and desire of belonging may have been the main struggle, now the battle is with disappointment, boredom, frustration and resentment. We come to the realisation that those grand dreams we had as children are over, that what we imagined we could be, we are not, much to our own disappointment. John Mark Comer notes that we become aware of our human condition, namely that desire is infinite and yet we are finite and the awareness that we are finite causes immense restlessness. As Henry David Thoreau famously put it, the youth gets together the materials to build a bridge to the moon or perchance a palace or temple on the earth and at length the middle-aged man concludes to build a woodshed with them. The band Great Big, Wor Great Big World capture this perfectly when they sing and we're all getting older, wishing we were young. 
hanging on the memory of what we would become, singing, ah, I was born to be a rock star. I'm well familiar with this stage, as it is solidly where I find myself. As a boy, I dreamed of going to Africa and building a hospital. As I got older, this dream developed to include multiple hospitals across Africa or even the world, coupled with medical education and quality healthcare with a profound global impact. And yet, here I stand, a middle-aged, balding man, speaking from paper, not electronic things, because I don't know how to use them, <laughs> with a wonderful family and a solid career, yet underwhelmed with my own achievements and trying to figure out what comes next. I've helped establish a single small health clinic in Uganda and struggled to meet the demands associated with just this on top of family life and work responsibilities. Although I, like many in this stage, wrestle with doubts and fears familiar to all of us, I am confident and secure in the knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is. Unlike the disciples on the road, I do not walk along wondering if all I've heard is true, but similarly to them, I feel disappointed that things have not played out as I expected. Their expectation was that God's Messiah would come with physical power and might, emphatically delivering them from oppression and injustice. For me, and perhaps for many of us, the struggle is to understand why things play out the way they do. Uh, this side of Resurrection Sunday, and more so, what is my role in all of this? Like the football fan in Scenario 3, we remember the glorious victory, but it often feels so long ago, and it can be difficult to see how is it relevant to the here and now. The third and final phase, dubbed uh, Radical Discipleship by Rollheiser, is characterised by the struggle to give one's death away. Rollheiser notes that much as Jesus gave his life away to others, similarly, he also gave his death away in passivity, humiliation and helplessness. This stage of life comes as career ends, children have families of their own, and the anchors and ties that held strongly in the second stage become untethered. This phase is characterised by loss and letting go. There can be a temptation to buck against this focus by enjoying what I've worked hard for. This is most often characterised by luxurious trips and grand purchases to try and claim control over life when it seems to be slipping away. I was having lunch with a lovely couple my parents' age who have become friends. The husband, a recently retired medical doctor, spoke of his struggles adjusting to retirement. He mentioned that in his career, especially during the latter years, he was well respected around the hospital and addressed with a certain degree of reverence and respect. He admitted finding it difficult to be just another person away from the hospital setting. The loss of esteem, purpose, physical capacity and even close relationships can be disorienting and depressing. Like the disciples on the road, what was once so full of promise can seem emptied out and hollow. While we may know God more deeply than any other stage in our lives, we are unable to live for him in ways that we previously would have. Rather than supporting others, we rely on them to support us. I understand this stage the least, as it's one I've not yet experienced, but I can appreciate some of the considerable challenges that it throws up. Regardless of the stage of life in which we find ourselves currently, much like these disciples, Walking downcast out of Jerusalem, we can find ourselves confused, disappointed and grieved. These emotions can crescendo, overwhelming us so that we become myopic and focused on our own concerns and we lose sight of what is around us. 
We read Jesus' promise to be forever with us, but we fail to acknowledge or recognise the stranger walking alongside of us. The fact that we fail to recognise Jesus is no less surprising, really, than the two disciples' inability to recognise him, even as he walked physically alongside of them. Their picture and expectation was of an exalted and conquering king, not a scarred and wounded loser. In fact, so rattled are they that even stories of an empty tomb and angels are not enough to lift them from their funk. In a similar way, we create pictures and versions of Jesus that can differ wildly from who he actually is. Author and teacher Scott McKnight notes that when he asks students in his theological classes to complete surveys on who they are and who they think God is, there is huge overlap. We often end up creating a God who looks a lot like us, who likes the things we like, campaigns against what we object to, votes how we vote and endorses our spending habits. It's no wonder that as we drift along the road of life, shoulders slumped and gaze downcast, we fail to recognise the stranger beside us as the resurrected Messiah. Again, like these two on the road, we often need a sharp word to lift us from our navel-gazing. Jesus doesn't go softly, softly here to protect their egos. He cuts to the chase. You guys know the deal. Why are you surprised? He then proceeds to re-educate them to correct their erroneous thinking and to bring them back to the reality of who God is, not who they want him to be. Unsurprisingly, he does this by appealing to scripture. Going back to Rollheiser, he notes, and I've put the quote up here for you. Simply put, the invitations that come to us from scripture, particularly from Jesus, meet us in very different ways at different times in our lives. We hear them in one way when we are young, in another in midlife, and in still quite a different way when we are old and facing death. Moreover, not all of Jesus' invitations ask for the same level of response at a given time in our lives. Some of his challenges are meant to bring us to basic conversion. Some are meant to deepen that conversion, and still others are meant to take that conversion to its full term and make us full saints. At one stage of our lives, Jesus calls us to give up something for him. At another stage, he calls us to give up everything. Sometimes Jesus invites us to small conversions and sometimes he invites us to martyrdom. Looking at the challenges of Jesus, we see that one size does not fit all. Just as there are different stages or phases of life's journey, so there are different things we hear and take to heart during those stages. In the early stage of life, the focus may be much more on making us aware of Jesus and his great love for us. The second stage may have us hearing a call to move beyond our own needs and ego to a place where we can become a true blessing to others. The final stage, we may hear Jesus' voice urging us to finish the race, to mentor and bless rather than being consumed by loss and frustration. To me, one of the most fascinating aspects of this story is the disciples' response or seeming lack thereof to, him, to Jesus opening up the good news to them in a systematic, straight-from-the-horse's-mouth kind of way. Luke records no major reaction from them as they walk alongside Jesus. Many of us, and I definitely put myself top of the list, would do just about anything to have the opportunity that these disciples had, to walk physically alongside of Jesus and ask him questions that arise in those moments of greatest fear and doubt. And yet, 
we must also be aware that we are prone to offer the same reaction to Jesus' voice. I've prayed, but I didn't hear anything. I've knocked on the doors, but there's no answer. Much like the library of scripture that Jesus here speaks directly from, he never offers pithy platitudes or simple answers. He speaks in parables, metaphors, questions. Even when his life was at stake, just hours earlier, when asked if he was the king of the Jews, he doesn't give a straight answer. His words, and indeed the words of scripture, require stillness, patience and meditation. Things that are almost foreign to us in our culture. So, what's the good news here? Well, for some of you, irrespective of your stage in life, things are good. You feel great and God feels close. That is fantastic. And we want to celebrate that with you. For the rest of us, what's the good news? Life is full of challenges and being a follower of Jesus is hard. Is that our reflection on the resurrection? Well, at times it can certainly feel like that. And if that's how you feel right now, please know you're not alone. In fact, one of the things that Jesus did make crystal clear is that as followers of him, our lives will be characterised by suffering, at least this side of our own resurrection. However, I don't think this is the end of the story. When Jesus sits with these disciples and breaks bread with them, something happens. The words that he had been speaking suddenly find their mark. And the lives of these two disciples are changed forever. There is something in that moment. If I can find where I'm up to. There is something in that moment for them. When he tears the curtains back and lets the light flood in. The change is profound enough to turn them around back to Jerusalem. Despite all their previous fears and worries about that place. It is profound enough to re-establish joy pure joy in their hearts it's profound enough to erase their doubts and boldly proclaim jesus as the risen messiah it is profound enough that the story was retained in oral tradition written down by luke and read down through the centuries there is something about this story that is deeply human and still holds relevance for us today as i was wrestling with how to conclude this i started thinking about another man luke writes about who is walking down a road This man is utterly unimpressed by the stories of Jesus' resurrection and he's angry about people who talk about it, angry enough to kill. Saul, who later becomes known as Paul, also meets the resurrected Jesus on a road and is so profoundly affected that he repents. Literally, he turns his life around in one of the most abrupt U-turns ever recorded. However, Between this divine intervention and the beginning of Paul's travels to share the good news, nearly a decade passes. Good things take time. Those painful, anxious, boring, distressing periods form and shape us like water trickling over rock. Psychology professor K. Anders Ericsson, in his landmark study, found that it takes at least 10,000 hours of practice to master something. We should take comfort knowing that these dramatic changes and sudden shifts are documented because they are exceptions rather than the rule. Life involves lots of walking and a lot less breaking bread moments. So, what does resurrection mean for us today? Regardless of our stage in life, Jesus is with us and has a message specific for where we are. But... 
We need to see him for who he is, not who we want him to be. When God reveals his name to Moses, he says, God, God, a God of mercy and grace, endlessly patient, so much love, so deeply true, loyal in love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. Still, he doesn't ignore sin. God is merciful, patient, glorious and loyal in love. And we need to be patient as we wait for him to speak to us. No matter how we feel in our workaday existence, the resurrection has changed the world forever. And this is truly good news. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through the hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.